Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullet. Alexa, it's been a while. How are you doing? Yeah, I miss you, <laughs> I I miss you too. So I'm glad that we can do this. Unfortunately, we're doing it at a time that for you isn't really drinking compatible, right? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on what you consider drinking compatible, but this is 11 a.m. for me. Um, and, you know, technically a work day, if you consider days in the summer for academics work days. Um, so I'm going to be drinking rooibos tea instead of beer. Yeah, well, your lack of dedication has been noted. Uh, <laughs> if you're like, you know, there's definitely, you could channel a mindset where you're like 11, it's close enough to noon, time to get started. Yeah, right. Close enough to noon, which is close enough to 5 p.m., which is close enough to a time that, you know, you could respectively have a beer. I mean, you could go to brunch and have a mimosa, right? That's sort That's of... true. It's interesting how like some types of alcohol seem more like morning acceptable than others. Like a mimosa does sound really different than like, I don't know, having a scotch right now or something. <laughs> right, just doing a shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Or even a beer. I mean, a beer at 11 seems gross, but a mimosa seems regular. Yeah. And do you ever have micheladas? No. What are those? They're like, um, the first time I ever had one was in, in Mexico and it's like, it's like a, a light beer that has like Tabasco sauce and other spices and stuff in it. And that I think is like something people drink in the morning that feels like really refreshing and delicious. Oh yeah. Right. So it's kind of like, uh, it's like a Caesar or a Bloody Mary, I guess. Right, but like more refreshing. I mean, I, there's no way for me to really describe it. That doesn't sound disgusting, but I love them. Hmm. All right, that's this is definitely something I'm going to look into. Yeah, so the reason that we're recording at this for you not drinking friendly hour um, is that I'm back in Spain for the second time in two years. And so it's now my 6 p.m., your 11 a.m. So I am drinking. And I think last time that I was in Spain, I just drank wine. Um, because it's so good and cheap here. But uh -huh. but this time, I our listeners will appreciate, I made a special trip to the fancy beer store and uh, I picked up a beer from Spain. So this is from uh, Basque Land Brewing and it is a milkshake sour IPA. Yes. Yeah. Oh, how I thought you'd be excited. <laughs> um, and it's called uh, La Fresa Pesa. Um, so fresa means strawberry. So I assume it's strawberry flavored. And then pesa, I didn't know the word and I looked it up and it means weight, like a weight you would lift at the gym. So I, I, I have no idea. I did. This is probably some Spanish idiom where it's like, this happens to me a lot. It's like, I can look up the word, but then it doesn't actually make any sense. So it does rhyme though. So it rhymes. Maybe it's just all about the rhyme. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to crack this open. I am very excited about this. I actually like had... I nearly took a different beer, and then I saw this on the way to the checkout, and I was like, "Wow, okay, this is something that if only for Alexa." A sign, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I knew you would be excited about this. So, so let's see. Um, so it is visually uh, pinkish, so that's good. Oh wow, it looks like almost like grapefruit juice or something. It looks very frothy. Mm. Oh, it's because I poured it badly. Wow. It's super interesting because you definitely get the like <laughs> lactosey milkiness and then it tastes like strawberries. It is, it's sort of like a strawberry milkshake, but also a beer. Do you think if you tasted it without knowing any information about it, you would have thought it was a beer? Or is it like almost like a different kind of drink? Hold on, I'm gonna try and put myself in the mindset. <laughs> it does have some beeriness in the smell. Like it smells like okay, beer. Yeah. I wish that our listeners could see you 
getting this little beer foam mustache each time. (laughs) (laughs) That is 100% my lousy job pouring. Okay. So at least one of us is going to be drinking. I do um, have a dinner that I'm going to after this, and uh, it's a Shabbos dinner, and there's going to be grandparents there, and they only speak Spanish. And so basically all of that is a reason to not show up completely drunk. So I think I'm going to stick with one beer. We'll we'll see how it goes. How's your... How's your Spanish? Oh, it's uh, so rudimentary. So I can sort of understand them when they talk sometimes, but I, I I don't know. I just like when I'm on the spot, I sort of freeze and make stupid mistakes. And I, I feel like if I can plan out what I'm going to say, I'm much better. But like today, the lunch lady gave me an extra plate and I wanted to say I have a plate already, but I misconjugated the verb. So I was like, he has a plate already. And she looked at me like, what? <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, I was. I just feel like an idiot every day is the, the short answer. It sounds so hard. Yeah. Um, Megan and I are planning to go to Cuba. Um, and so I've been like doing Duolingo and I have yeah. no foundation in Spanish. Like, I mean, I like took some French classes growing up in Canada, but like didn't take any Spanish growing up. And so it's, um, very unfamiliar and very hard. And I don't think that, I think like if I'm able to say like a phrase to someone at some point that like, accomplishes a goal i'll be like really pleased but there's no way i'll be able to converse with people or yeah yeah well i feel like that's a good goal um and i feel confident (laughs) that you will be able to do that like it really helps if you can rehearse beforehand you're like here's what i need to ask for Uh here's what they might say back here's what my response is going to be but if i'm if I'm caught by surprise, then I often I just panic switch back into English. And then later I'm like, oh, I actually know how to say that. Um, yeah. The, the other real issue that I'm facing is I don't know how to say anything in the past tense. It's present mm-hmm. tense only. So <laughs> like the other day I was like at the train station and I asked the guy, like, is there a bathroom here? And I asked him that in Spanish and I understood his response. But then I had to go back through the little fare gate in order to get to it. And I needed to tell him, no, I, I just got off that train. I was on that train. So I can't put my ticket back through the thing. And I was like, I don't know how to say it. I was on the, I could say I, I am on the train, yeah, but that's which, not helpful. Also so, seems yeah. like a really hard thing to like, I guess like, I don't know, maybe if you have rudimentary Spanish, you can like say some things, but then like you know, gesture to like modify it to be like what you're going for. But I don't know how you like gesture to say like in the past, <laughs> like, past, like <laughs> point at watch, you know, rewind motion, <laughs> L10, you know, yeah, no, it's just like at that point, I'm just like, fuck it. I'll like try it in English. And usually they understand enough English that it's okay. Uh-huh. But yeah, it's, 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 it's humiliating. It's every day. It's humiliating because I'm like, I just, I, I want to be better at this and it's just takes so long. Are you getting better? Yeah, I'm improving, but just That's like good. not slowly enough for my for my liking. Uh-huh. And you know, I'm I'm leaving in a few days. So it's like I'll be at my best right when I leave and then I'll forget most of it by the uh-huh. time I ever have to use it again. So, it's very sad. Sounds futile, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, so why do I even try? <laughs> I should just um I should just like do English for everything. No, I'm sure you'll get to the point where it's like for like little things, like you go into a store and you're like, I would like this and I, I'd like to pay with a credit card and can I have a bag? And that's stuff where it's like you just have these like kind of set phrases and uh-huh. they don't really vary. Like you'll totally get there. And that even yeah. that's nice, right? You kind of feel a little bit like Yeah, no, that sounds nice. I mean, I definitely like think it's great that you're trying to speak as much Spanish as you can. 
<laughs> still extremely small amount. Okay, so what what are we doing today? Um, okay, so today we're going to talk about this um, paper. Uh, the lead author is David Pinsoff. Um, and the paper is called Strange Bedfellows, the, the Alliance Theory of Political Belief Systems. Um, so I thought this was a really interesting paper. Um, and generally, it's sort of a, a theory about where we get our political beliefs from. Um, so I guess, you know, conventional wisdom would suggest that our p- political beliefs are rooted in something like core values. So for instance, if you have a core value that um, that you prioritize fairness, then maybe that like gives rise to your support for some political position like progressive taxation. Or if you have a core value of free speech, maybe that gives rise to the political belief that um, that social media spaces shouldn't be uh, moderated. Um, so this paper is challenging that view um, and suggesting that w- what is really happening is that people form alliances with other people. Um, and p- perhaps more broadly, groups form alliances with other groups. And that these um, groups that are in alliance with each other develop political beliefs that serve to maintain those alliances. Um, so the first part of the paper focuses on how those alliances are chosen. And then the second part focuses on how this process can lead to inconsistencies in people's beliefs. So one of the sort of main focuses of the paper is ways that um, people at sort of all points on the political spectrum hold uh, beliefs that are idiosyncratic, right? So it seems like they're in conflict or they seem hypocritical. Um, and so the, the authors argue that that's because they're not rooted in some sort of core thread, but instead they're sort of like artifacts of the patchwork of alliances that we've formed over time. Right. Right. And just to give people the background of like how much this is against the grain of political psychology, it's just been kind of a presumption of political psychology that people's ideologies come at least partly from some differences in their dispositions, right? So like going back to Adorno in the 50s and uh, his work on the authoritarian personality to um, John Jost uh, and his and his colleagues' account of motivated uh, ideology as motivated cognition, where there's supposed to be these differences between liberals and conservatives in uh, resistance to change and tolerance for inequality, to even um, frameworks that are seen as kind of trying to be more, I guess, even-handed in the sense of like not saying conservatives are terrible, but like, so um, John Haidt's Five moral right. foundations, where it's you know like people on the left and right care about different moral values, um, and he makes the argument that you know it's Western uh, liberals who are actually kind of unusual in the global context. But still, like all of those are saying, yeah, there's these like kind of pre-existing differences, these deep differences in what different people care about, and that attracts them. Um, to either the left or the right side of the political spectrum, um, and then consequently they I- adopt these ideological worldviews. And this is, I, I think, at at its strongest in the the current paper. Uh, you can read them as saying all, all of that isn't true, and it's just really kind of arbitrary. Um, and you sort of like blunder into being a member of some group that's in coalition or conflict with other groups, uh, and that ends up determining your ideology. So. Alexa, overall, what did you make of this argument? So I guess overall, I really, first of all, I really enjoyed reading this paper. And I think that their account is very underappreciated. So 
Um, yeah, it's helpful to get sort of like your background. And I mean, this is an area that you know a lot about. Um, but yeah, my my understanding is that there is sort of a general assumption that, yeah, there's some some like deep value that then gives rise to people's ideology. And I also feel that way about myself, or I want that to be true about myself. You know, I don't want my political beliefs to just be like a random patchwork of like ways that I appease my friends and people that I like and like not coherent in any way or reflecting any sort of like core principles. Um, but then I find the account that they provide here very plausible. Like I think that the idea that um, alliances are driving a lot of our political beliefs um, makes a lot of sense to me. And I've I, I feel like I've generally felt like the basically like social influence is is in some ways underappreciated. I don't know much about um, political theorizing in domains other than psychology, but I would say at least within in psychology, um, we sort of underestimate the the influence of just sort of like a yeah appealing to people who we're close to in these beliefs. Um, I guess I think that they're okay. So. At one point in the paper, um, they talk about how they make a couple of assumptions with, which they defend throughout the paper, and we'll go into more detail about these assumptions. Um, and then they sort of conclude that these assumptions alone, so um, actually maybe it's worth saying what they are here. So one is that we have sort of cognitive mechanisms for forming and detecting alliances. And then one is that we then use what they call propagandistic tactics, which we will get into more. Um, to support allies and oppose rivals. So they say these, these assumptions alone can explain the diverse contents of political belief systems, including their many inconsistencies and double standards. Um, I think that goes too far. So I don't think that that is an entire comprehensive account of people's political belief systems. And I do think that values come into play and there are individual differences that come into play and it's not like completely arbitrary and random. Um, so that's my my overall take. Yeah, I mean, I guess it like one kind of big question that this raises is how groups become allied in the first place. And you could say, well, may, some groups are more naturally allies, and they do sort of, I, I think, um, say that in this paper as well. Um, so you could say, like, well, one natural group of allies might be losers from globalization. Uh, right. So I guess that's it's a sort of a self-interest perspective or a group interest perspective. You know, we're the people who've been harmed by globalization, um, and uh, we are going to make common cause with other people who have been, and that underlies some of the rise of populism in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, so I guess in in that way. Um, you say, well, there's some kind of pattern to the kind of alliances that um, that are formed. Um, and I think you could go a step further and say, well, you know, some groups um, are naturally inclined to want certain things for reasons that are sort of outside of politics. So it might be that some groups are into um, cultural experimentation, um, skeptical of longstanding cultural traditions, skeptical of traditional morality. Um, They might ally with each other against groups who are on the other side of that. But at that point, like then you are, I feel, now I, I don't think they go that far actually to say that that could be a mechanism. But I think if you get there, then you're kind of back at, well, there's maybe these dispositional differences that line people up on the left and the right. Like the cultural experimenters um, are the people who are like, 
legalized drugs, um, uh, sex outside of marriage is okay, sexual experimentation is okay, um, non-traditional relationships are okay, right? Like all of this stuff, like it does kind of feel like it goes together. um, And then you might ally with other groups who have kind of similar interests. But then we're kind of back at, well, there's these underlying differences between people that like pull them in one direction or the other, right? Right, which I think was that that came out a little bit in the paper. Um, So they talk about different um, reasons or different qualities that draw people to others as allies, right? Um, And the first thing that they list in this section of the paper is similarity. Um, And so they say here that sharing the same beliefs, preferences, and expectations allows for more efficient and fluid coordination. So this is their account for why it would make sense to form allies with people that are similar, But if you're forming allies with people because they share similar beliefs, that starts to feel a little bit circular, right? So, um, or it starts to sound a lot like, okay, there are these core values that brought you together as allies um, that are now sort of giving rise to your political beliefs. So, I mean, they have other reasons for how people choose their allies and some some of which are sort of like more random um, and some of which are sort of... I guess, like downstream effects of already having allies. So we also choose allies because their people are allied with our allies and things like that. Um, but it does seem like there is this sort of underlying question of, yeah, who are natural allies? Is this totally random? Um, and they seem to, yeah, to acknowledge at some point that maybe like sort of like core beliefs or they say beliefs, preferences, and expectations um, might be some of the things that draw people to each other. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there, there are three, um, factors, I guess, that influence, uh, choice of allies that they talk about are similarity, which you talked about already transitivity. So friends of my friends are my friends, enemies of my friends are my enemies. Um, and then this, or you've already touched on as well, stochasticity, this idea that there can be positive feedback loops such that like kind of small, almost chance differences compound over time in order to create different sets of alliances, which would suggest like a lot of differences across cultures as kind of um, randomly different groups become allies, right? Right. I do think that their, um, their approach does a really good job of helping helping us to understand why sometimes political beliefs seem to go together that don't seem to share like a common thread. And that, that seems to be sort of their entry point into the paper is that they talk about these sort of um, strange bedfellows, right? Like these beliefs that if you were just approaching understanding somebody's beliefs from like looking for like commonalities or basic principles, it would be hard to maybe tie them together. Yeah. So, like, what are some examples of that that you found compelling? Um, one of the one of the examples um, was the idea that liberals think that it's really unacceptable for like um, CEOs to m- be millionaires or billionaires, um, but they don't think that it's uh, unacceptable for actors or athletes um, to be millionaires or billionaires. The, I wasn't that familiar. They refer to a specific study that that looked at liberals' views about um, about how much money people should be allowed to make, and they, I guess, the data showed that liberals thought that it was okay for 
athletes and and um and yeah movie stars to make lots of money um but that was one example they gave and then another example again uh on the liberal side of things is like thinking that um it's it's not acceptable to make assumptions about people based on where they were born but then you know making the assumption that people from the south are racist for instance um yeah, yeah i noticed you have... flagged that one as a as an adoptive southerner yes yeah i i felt vindicated by that right right so uh, i think where they're really convincing is in showing that they they basically they talk about like modern day US. And actually I wonder whether there's a risk there of like getting lost in the weeds and that making it seem like there's not kind of larger uh patterns. Like I would have appreciated kind of a more serious treatment of um cross-cultural differences. Yeah. I think that would have strengthened it. But I, I think they're very good at pointing out that there there are things about um, that kind of alignment of views that you have as like a well-informed left or right-leaning person that they they do seem arbitrary and sometimes contradictory. Uh, like the idea that um, support for gun restrictions should go along with um, being an environmentalist, and that should go along with support for racial minority rights. Like those don't really have a logical connection to each other, right? I, I mean, I guess we could try and come up with one, but it would seem like it would be like, post hoc rationalizing. Yeah, right. I mean, and that can be really persuasive. Um, but I think that's partly the author's point is that um, that we come to this sort of mismatch of beliefs and then we like find ways to sort of string them together. And um, and I think one on the, the right would be like the idea of um, – being in support of the death penalty, for instance, but then being opposed to abortion, right? So if you sort of like infer that the the underlying value is like an appreciation for life, then why is the death penalty okay or something? Right, right. And and I'm sure as a conservative, you could say like, no, those are really different. You know, the unborn baby is innocent and the murderer right. or whoever you're executing. You know. So like, yeah, you can like come up. We're pretty good at coming up with stories that explain why these things make sense and should go together. But I think the argument that they are pretty persuasively making is like, yeah, well, why should we buy people's claims about why those go together? It seems more plausible that there's a lot of arbitrariness in this collection of views. Right. Yeah. Um, but I appreciated your point about the like how how it would have been nice to have more of a cross-cultural analysis. Um, that was something that I made a note of about the paper. Um, so yeah, the authors, you know, sort of acknowledge that they're focusing on the US and um it would have been a much more ambitious paper if they had attempted to um include the entire globe. So I understand why um why that they didn't try to tackle that project in one paper. Um, but it's also kind of a core tenet of their model or their, their model would predict that these, the sort of like nature of left and right would be, could be really different depending on where you live. Right. So you'd have these like really different alliance structures because you have different histories, different environmental factors, um, different sort of, uh, random events. Right. And so I, th I think that, if we see really similar um, values or really similar like 
clusters of beliefs on the right and the left across the globe, that would, I think, be a challenge to their theory. And I guess they could say that we live in a very like globalized world and, you know, these political systems are becoming sort of transmitted across the globe. But I don't know. Um, I do think that that would challenge their theory. And so you know, we can't really see that from from the analysis that they've done here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, just using, you know, my personal experience and knowledge, it seems that this this idea of like kind of nativist populism became uh, prevalent in lots of places simultaneously. Uh, the fact that what were previously kind of worker-focused left-wing parties became more and more parties of educated elite people seems to be happening in lots of places. Now, they might say, well, like the common factor there is globalization, and that creates different winners and losers, and that's going to play out in the same way across countries. So I suppose mm -hmm. that's possible. Um, but, you know, as having lived in um, Montreal for a while, I'm paying a little more attention to Quebec politics. Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of like interesting it, how you can come up with examples there that both support them and don't. Um, because the, the party that um, is in power in the province, the uh, CAQ, uh, they are uh, francophone, um, kind of nativist, I guess, at least culturally, like they want to preserve the French-Canadian culture. Um, they're not economically right-wing. If anything, they're um, more redistributivist. Um, but they are like cultural traditionalists and their base of support is more rural, more older people, less educated people. So all of the folks that, you know, kind of stereotypically take the kind of pro-populist or nativist side internationally. And you're like, okay, well, on the one hand, it like this uh, idea of, well, those policies always go along with like being economically right-wing obviously is disproven there. But at the same time, it does kind of seem to be this package of like, we like our culture, we don't want it to change, we want to protect it against people coming in from outside who want to change it. Like they're definitely anti- they're not they're not entirely anti-immigration like I think they like francophone immigrants but they don't like ang anglophone immigrants at all right so they're trying to preserve like the French language and culture um and then they're like you know our cultural traditions are nice and we like them um and you shouldn't go messing around with them and it seems mm -hmm. like that's kind of a pretty powerful theme right. that's non-arbitrary that you see in a lot of politics right yeah so one of the things that they address in the paper is other models of um, how people arrive at their political beliefs. Um, and these sort of broadly uh, have the flavor of like, okay, there is some type of like core disposition or value that's characteristic of either the right or left. And that's sort of why um, people who al align in those ways have the beliefs that they do. And the different um, sort of theories that they address are, you mentioned like authoritarianism before. So, so one is the yeah. idea that conservatives are just more authoritarian. Um, and then they also mentioned something called intolerance theory, um, which suggests that conservatives are just more intolerant of outgroups than liberals. And they, they reject both of these um, on the grounds that, so for intolerance theory, basically they claim that both liberals and conservatives are 
intolerant of lots of groups. It's just that they're intolerant of different groups. Um, authoritarianism theory. So conservatives give more sort of respect to authority. Um, but again, they here they say, okay, liberals give lots of respect to authority too. It's just different authorities, right? So maybe conservatives um, respect, say, religious authority, but liberals respect scientific authority or things like that. Um, and then another one that they address is egalitarianism theory. Um, and here the idea is that liberals are more egalitarian and that's sort of a core value that they share. Um, and you mentioned something that I don't think fits with any of these, which is just that conservatives value the way things have been in tradition and and that's sort of like in the in the name. Um, so that seems plausible to me as well. But the one that I felt like they, um, I was pretty persuaded by their rejection of intolerance theory and authoritarianism theory. Um, I still sort of, maybe it's because it's the one I identify with the most, egalitarianism theory. Um, the idea that that people who are liberal um, value like an equal distribution of, of resources more than people who are conservative. Um, they, they rejected that on the grounds that um, there were a couple of things. So one is like, if you ask liberals and conservatives about their endorsement of egalitarianism in some abstract ways. So one of the ways that they discussed was, um, just describing hypothetical societies with different levels of inequality. So if you ask liberals and conservatives, I guess, to, to say what they think of these societies, they're both like, they both similarly value relatively equal societies, right? Um, and then they also refer to some data that showed that when you ask liberals, okay, if you ask them an item like, okay, would America be much better off if all the rich people were at the bottom of the social ladder? Um, liberals are will willing to say, sure, like, let's put all the rich people at the bottom, right? And so the, the authors claim, oh, well, that's not really valuing egalitarianism because you're still saying you want a hierarchy. You just want the rich people to be at the bottom of the hierarchy, and I guess I wasn't too persuaded by that because that seems like an artifact of the item wording. Like, you know, you're not given the option of... Yeah, that's just kind of like, oh, I don't like rich people. Yeah, right. Like, um, yeah, you can't say like everybody should be equal. You, yeah, you don't really have that option with the item. Um, so I'm still clinging to to egalitarianism theory as something that's also playing a role. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I, I feel the same way about the evidence that um, there's not differences in egalitarianism uh, between the left and the right, that this is kind of one of the sections where I thought the evidence was a bit weaker. Um, like this uh, study with, you know, what hypothetical wealth distributions would you want? Um, for both Republicans and Democrats, they're so far off from what actually is the distribution in the U.S. that you wonder whether they understood the question correctly or whether they actually know what the status quo is. Right. It's just like there's a question mark over those findings for me uh, just because it's it, it it's just like radically different from the actual status quo. And and uh, so, yeah, I'm, I, I wonder – I mean – I, I would just want to see more before I concluded that, like, really the preferences of uh, Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. are so close to each other. Yeah. Um, I do think that they do a bit of blurring, which I, which is fair because it's been done in – at least in U.S. political psychology as well – but they they collapse together economic left right and cultural left right 
right? And they say, well, it's evidence against the view that ideology comes from something non-arbitrary, that in many countries you see economic redistribution being paired with uh, kind of uh, authoritarianism, a strongman model, where, you know, we're going to put this guy in charge and he's going to take from the rich and give to us. Um, and I, I think it is true that you see that. Um, and I, But what that says to me is that this linkage between economic free marketism and social conservatism that you see in the U.S., that that's kind of arbitrary. And that could have gone another way and does, in fact, go another way in many other places. But that doesn't say to me that people who like a strong leader, who think that strong leaders should have wide latitude to do things, to uh, create the outcomes that I like, even if it violates norms, uh, even if it violates laws. Like, that seems to me to be a different kind of psychology. And it just seems very plausible to me that the people who are like, I'm into that, might be attracted to other things that have to do with that psychology, right? That we're not... It's it's not that you would find like a cultural progressive. Like, well, I mean, I'm sure you could find one, but that you would find many who would say, you know, I want um, a lot of experimentation with uh, lifestyles and sexuality, um, and a lot of different people uh, being able to experiment with that sort of stuff. But also, I want an authoritarian strongman to implement all that. Right. That does seem almost like fundamentally contradictory. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, and reading this paper also made me appreciate the challenges of measuring people's political values. So, yeah, thinking back a little bit to the um, distribution um, example. So, wait, I wanted you to say, so you said that the what people um, said was ideal was really different than what exists in the country. I assume you mean like they they wanted something much more equal. Yeah, they wanted something a lot, a lot flatter. So, okay, so, so, so two things. Yeah, it's like they're both uh, Republicans and Democrats. If you ask them, um, build your ideal wealth distribution and you compare it to the actual wealth distribution, um, it's a lot flatter. But also, I don't think this is published, but I know there's data showing if you ask Democrats and Republicans, build your ideal tax distribution. So how how much um, of income tax should come from the wealthiest versus the middle versus the poorest? They also come up with something flatter. So their taxes are less progressive than we actually have. Right. So is it just like people kind of like flatter distributions? It feels more fair to them. It's not clear. I just wonder with those sorts of questions, like whether people actually are know what they're answering and how seriously to take their answers. Yeah, right. There, I think there's like questions with interpreting their answers, especially in such a like such an abstract exercise. And then I think there's also the question of like, okay, everybody can say that they like value egalitarianism or they like want fairness or whatever. And and that's like those words are so positively laden that I don't think that you're going to get dramatic differences between groups of people, right? Um, but then the question is like, okay. Does just saying that you value that mean that you value it? Or do you have to show, like, do you have to put your money where your mouth is and, like, you know, vote for somebody who is going to put a tax scheme into place uh, that actually, like, 
means that things will get flatter, especially if that means that like my, maybe you will lose out. Right. Um, right. so like how to, to see, like, do people actually prioritize this rather than simply saying like, Oh yeah, this is important. You know, this is a value of mine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that totally gets to like, how seriously can you take people's answers to these questions? Like you said. Um, and I, I don't, I, I think that these studies are like really intriguing. Um, and by that at the same time, like I, I do question how much we learn about people's actual policy preferences by asking them to make these somewhat abstract judgments. I mean, I wonder like, what is the, so we're sort of complaining about the strength of the evidence, but like, what is something that would be disconfirming here? Like, w like what would convince you, what study would convince you, oh, actually, you know, there isn't a difference between people on the left and right and their, how much they value equality? Uh, yeah, that's, it's tricky because, I mean, one of the things that seems the, like seems to be uh, a good indicator of how, what, how people prioritize things is how they vote. And obviously liberals and conservatives vote differently. Um, but yeah, I, I also think that, you know, if you ask a liberal and a conservative, okay, here's a core value of fairness. Um, how do you think that fairness should be accomplished? I think that's where you might start to see like clear differences in what, how people say we should get to that goal. Um, I guess the question would be like, how can you establish that both are really valuing fairness, but they think that the path is different um, versus, okay, one side is saying that they value fairness and they're actually acting on that versus the other side is saying that they value fairness, but they don't. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's like, I, I feel like I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but yeah, how I guess you would need evidence to show that um, that there is like consistency between um, people on the left and people on the right in terms of all of these core values, but then their political beliefs are different. And actually, I'm not even sure that their model requires that. Their model, I guess, requires that um, the thing that predicts our political belief is the alliances and not the values. So you could theoretically have different values. Right, right. So it, get, so it gets a little bit complicated if, if you're saying, well, is it the case that people might like unfair distributions if those have the consequence of disfavoring some groups that they don't like or favoring mm -hmm. groups that they do like, right? Like, I wouldn't want to make the claim that that's not the case. I think that even people who overall might be more fairness inclined um, would, in a situation where you really get to screw the other side, might be like, oh, I'm going to throw that out the window um, and I'm going to choose to disadvantage the group that I really don't like. But is that, I mean, it's evidence that their taste for fairness might be limited, um, but I don't think, I don't think that alone would convince me that there might not be differences. Um, I mean, it it almost is part of the definition of being economically left that you're like, I want to redistribute and make right. the income and wealth distributions flatter, right? So if it's like, if it's the case that that's not actually true of the people who support that, I mean, that's, uh, that's remarkable. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, I am still like a little bit running into 
on some level, they say, yeah, of course, people's individual differences matter, their tastes matter, that uh, matters in terms of like who you think is similar to you. They talk a bit about individual differences at the end and the various roles that that can play. So they're definitely conceding, yeah, people vary and they that might lead them to be attracted to different um, uh, different groups or see different groups as natural allies or enemies. Um, but then isn't that, you know, individual differences, like deep differences in values are underlying the ideologies that work for us or don't. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what's super valuable about this paper is um, I do think that it really speaks powerfully against the attempt to shoehorn like every kind of idiosyncratic feature that we have in like modern American political life into some model that shows how that all follows from some dispositional differences, right? Which really has been, I don't think it's a caricature to say that's mostly what political psych has been doing. Like uh-huh. building these models that purport to explain these probably really kind of stochastic and contingent features of like the American landscape as it is in, you know, 2000 to 2020 or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, I appreciate that about the paper too. And I also like one one part of the paper that I enjoyed was, so they describe how once we have these alliances, we act to defend them. Um, and they call these uh, propagandistic biases. And it's like really easy to to see these kinds of biases playing out in political discourse, I think. So they they list three different types. So one is perpetrator biases. And this is when people who have perpetrated some kind of harm downplay their own wrongdoing um, and that of their allies. Um, and they also downplay the suffering of victims, right? Um, so I guess you could think of, for instance, like, um, you could think of, uh, police violence, right? And so people who are on the right are going to downplay the extent to which police are causing harm and they're going to downplay the suffering of people who have been harmed by the police, right? And then there are, on the other hand, victim biases, right? And this is, this suggests that when people have been victimized, they exaggerate their own suffering, um, and that of their allies, and they exaggerate the wrongdoing of perpetrators. So you can sort of imagine the flip scenario of the one that I just described. And then the third type of bias that they describe is attributional biases. And this is just a really like sort of fundamental type of bias that people exhibit, which is that we tend to take credit for good outcomes and um, blame external factors, potentially the other side, for bad outcomes. Um, and so... I mean, one thing that I will take from this paper, I mean, I think we're notoriously bad at recognizing how these biases operate in our own thinking. Um, But like I said, like, I think these biases are very visible in um, political discourse and political debates. And I don't know, I'm going to try to be a little bit more aware of like, you know, how these, these shape my positions on things. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was... Uh, one of the stronger parts of the paper and one that I found really compelling, the idea that, oh, basically these are different kinds of motivated reasoning um, and that they are uh, evident both on the left and the right um, and that they're kind of symmetrical in how they operate both on the left and the right. So 
playing up uh, the offenses against groups uh, that are allies, downplaying the misdeeds of groups that are allies. Just, you know, having like dipped a toe in conservative media, just curious about what's out there. It is so much of it is about these are these groups that are on our side are being victimized yeah. in X, Y, and Z ways, yeah. right? And it, it's just like a difference of focus on like what they actually choose to talk about. Um, and it is kind of, it's it's sort of jarring to see side by side, yeah, what's conservative media talking about versus, you know, what's the New York Times talking about? It's not like they're making up facts. It's that they're choosing to emphasize different things. And the, th the thing that seems most popular to emphasize is look at this bad thing that was done um, to a victim group that's in our coalition. Right. People seem to love that stuff, right? Like, th th that's obviously the reason that it, it gets written is that that's what gets the readers. Like, that's what draws people in. The, the outrage of these bad things were done to the people, the sympathetic people that I like. Right, right. And... Yeah. And that is, I think, very aligned with the approach of the paper. So, I mean, in those cases, it seems like the the um, reaction that both conservative and liberal media are pulling for is like a feeling that injustice has been done. Right. And the conservative media is pulling for a feeling that injustice is done to the like groups that are um, allied and disadvantaged with their side. Right. And then, you know, the same for the other side. And so it's like, this idea that everybody would endorse justice as a core value, right? But they would, yeah. they would say that justice be is being violated in completely different ways. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can at mention or DM us. That will go at least to me and Mickey. If you'd rather email us, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Uh, finally, our website, fourbeers.com. You can find any of our episodes there. You can drop us a line there also if you'd like. If you are enjoying the show, please do take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. It just helps other people discover the show, and we really enjoy reading the reviews. To get back to something that you mentioned just a little while ago, which is similar with this um, idea of uh, symmetry of deference to authority, which I do still, like, in some ways believe that cultural progressives 
are lower in that. And I think you do read stories about like dysfunction broadly in uh, progressive nonprofits where they're spending all their time questioning the decisions that are made by leadership and having sit-ins and they never actually get anything done, right? This is like right, a yeah. genre of story that you can read. Uh-huh. And I do feel like that kind of reflects, uh, you know, we're not just going to be told what to do um, and we want to make our voices heard and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, like the difference in deference to authority in COVID, right? Um, the way that uh, yeah, people on the right rejected uh, the CDC and uh, public health guidance and all of this stuff, and uh, people on the left enthusiastically embraced it and were like, right. we should do whatever they say. It's just like, it does not fit at all this idea of uh, conservatives being authoritarian and and liberals being anti-authoritarian yeah yeah absolutely yeah and like then that narrative of like you can't tell me what to do with my body has been like taken up by both sides depending on the cause right and i i think that's just such a great example of this explicitly coalitional stuff that uh this paper is talking about where on the right they talk about these institutions as having been you know hijacked by the bad groups and so you can't trust them because they've gone woke and uh, their advice is, you know, harmful and to be ignored. Or and, and so it's it's very much like, here are these authorities that we see as being allied with groups that we don't like, and therefore we're um, going to resist them. And other authorities that are, are allied with groups that we do like, you know, we think that they should be listened to. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so maybe like... Uh fatalistic interpretation of this paper could be like, okay, it doesn't matter what side you end up on. Is that what you take from this paper, you will? Uh, well, you know, like the footnote, um, there's a there's a footnote that's a little bit striking in its tone that comes early on in the paper um, that says, though we posit a psychological equivalence between liberals and conservatives in this regard, we firmly reject any kind of moral equivalence because different moral consequences can stem from the same underlying psychology. For example, more harm results from more vulner- vulnerable groups being characterized as enemies. So... There, even though the rest of the paper talks about these things, these processes being symmetric, they say, well, the outcomes might not be. Um, and even though this, I, I think this is a little bit of a problematic footnote because it like begs certain questions about, mm-hmm. well, you know, who is actually um, the more vulnerable group? Like that's a matter of debate and opinion, and you're going to have partisan biases and that. I do still think like that essentially it's right. It's like we can say, well, the process of like coalitional politics, um, that is something that is amoral um, and that's kind of universal no matter where you are on the political spectrum. But some political ideas are better than others, right? And so I would like to be in the political coalition that has the better political ideas than the worse political ideas. Yeah. And. Yeah, of course, like, then now I'm like, well, isn't that just your opinion, man? And that's where you kind of get stuck. Right. I do think that, like, one potentially positive, constructive, or potentially Pollyannish takeaway from the paper is that it seems in this footnote that the authors are saying, yeah, it's possible that one political, one one of the sides is more right than the other or more morally defensible than the other, Right. Um, but at the same time, 
the account that they give of the psychological processes that sort of might lead us to one side or the other um, suggests that um, maybe we could have ended up on the other side, right? So if if you take that away from the paper, it's like, okay, well, if I happen to be on the right side, maybe I could have ended up on the wrong side had my sort of like set of alliance pressures been different. Um, and sort of conversely, like maybe somebody who's on the wrong side, um, perhaps uh, they, yeah, could could have been on the right side given different circumstances. So, I mean, obviously the authors don't say what they think the right or the wrong side is. I mean, maybe they sort of like hint at that. Um, but I think one thing that they are saying is that uh, maybe we shouldn't be so like proud of the side that we're on. Like it might be a, like a little bit We've sort of been blown by the winds to get on this side. And it might be the case that our side is better or worse than the other side. But maybe it suggests that we should have less disdain for for people who are on this side that we're not on. Yeah, I mean, imagine a world in which, um, you know, university faculty are almost universally right aligned, right? Like, that actually doesn't... I, I Actually, I'm torn on how implausible it is. Because it seems like cross-culturally, if you're like where are the social movements that are like, we want to change the existing social order? Right. Like they very often start in universities. Um, so it seems like there's something intrinsic to higher ed that's a little more, uh, we want to change the system, right? But mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe I'm just like selective in in what I'm, the examples that I'm thinking of. And maybe there's counterexamples I'm not considering. Like you could imagine well, you know, higher ed is sort of the gateway um, to being one of the elite. Um, we are defenders of elite values, and therefore we're aligned with like elite tastes and preferences. And maybe those elite tastes and preferences are politically conservative in like a different era or in a different, you know, um, alternative universe. And when it's like, oh, everybody around you knows that these, you know, conservative positions are right. And we shun and dislike the people who, you know, um, the Lee Jussums in that world who are advocating for the progressive take, you know, I mean, like, it's, it's very easy to imagine that, uh, yeah, well, we're just going to go along with what most of our colleagues think and and not even in a way of like, oh, I'm just going to say what I think they want to hear, but in a way of, yeah, we actually believe that stuff is right. I mean, we, we know that there's these conformity pressures that aren't just external compliance, but that are, you know, informational. We hear about certain things that reinforce that worldview, and we hear that from all our friends, and it's just taken as a given that that worldview is right, and we're like, oh yeah, seems right. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point too. Like the paper seems to take more of like a, I guess so sometimes psychologists, when they talk about social influence, so the ways that we're influenced by other people, they make a distinction between normative, which is like, agreeing with other people to sort of like not make waves or like disrupt social order. And then there's informational, which is um, agreeing with other people because you think that they might know something that you don't. And the paper, I would say like maybe implicitly takes more of a, a normative focus. Like it's like, oh, we're trying to like get along with other people and we want to be accepted by them and liked by them. Um but but there also is probably a big informational component here. And that's something that like many, many researchers do address, right? The fact that we're getting most of our information often from people who are on the same side as us. And so like the the facts that we're using to support our positions 
um, or like coming selectively from from one side. Right. Exactly. And I I I think yeah that that it maybe gets a little bit underplayed the extent to which that is a, a really strong influence on people's beliefs. Like I think it's probably less common that people are like I privately disagree. But I'm just going to go along yeah, in order right. to not have fights, right? It's it, it's no, it's that we're convinced that that's actually the right thing to think, and the reason we think that is other people have given us a lot of information that suggests to us that that's correct. Yeah, right. right. Anything else we want to say about this paper before we wrap up? I I think we kind of covered it. Yeah, I think we did good. Hey, did you know that the first author is one of the. Uh, creators of the party game Cards Against Humanity. I did not know that. That's cool. Kind of, kind of neat, huh? Yeah. I thought that it was very well written, and I sort of attribute that to him. I don't know, knowing how to write in a way that's engaging. Yeah, that, I mean that has to be true. I has sort of have like um a pet project in the back of my mind of creating like I mean there are lots of spinoffs of Cards Against Humanity um, but creating my own version of that game like I thought about doing it for a friend's baby shower but I didn't get my shit together in time so maybe I'll have to get in touch with David Pinsoff and yeah drop him an email or what are you thinking of as far as like how are you going to modify it is it going to be like the, just the same mechanics and different cards or how's this look oh I can't remember what my idea was it was something like um, it would be probably something like more relationship based or like value based, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't either. I haven't worked out the details yet, or I'm just being deliberately vague on the podcast because I don't want anyone to steal my idea. Yeah, no, you gotta, you gotta keep that under wraps until yeah. we are ready to release it. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully he isn't litigious and doesn't decide to sue you for, you know, your, <laughs> <laughs> your Cards Against Humanity knockoff. He doesn't see it that way. I think he, he'd probably be into it. Okay, that's good. Good to know. Sweet. All right, well, um, thanks to all of you for listening. And uh, yeah, we've been on a bit of a, this is really my fault, on a on a bit of a bad schedule. Um, I think this is going to come out more than a month after our last release. Uh, and we are, we're hoping to do better. I don't know whether we're going to be able to st- stick uh, to the kind of two-week cadence, which to me is a bit heavy, and I'd like to scale it back a little bit, but um, at least like every four, I think, seems achievable, right? I think I could do that. 